This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 80 is, what is our appropriate relationship to the world? And we read Martin Heidegger's Letter on Humanism from 1949. That's our question? It was my best guess. What the hell is Heidegger talking about is the question. (laughs) That's a much better question. You can join the discussion, get a free version of the text, and read loads of supplementary material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, both humanistic and humane in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in the clearing of Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn, destinally projecting from Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, ecstatically projecting in Middleton, Wisconsin. Yeah, baby. Very nice. All right, so Seth, what did you think was the primary question of this reading, if it is not my suggestion? What is our appropriate relationship to the world? Maybe that's an appropriate question for being in time, where Heidegger spends a lot of time talking about what it means for human beings to be in the world. But in the letter on humanism, he's addressing or not addressing a different kind of question, which is something like, what is the nature of human being? What yeah. is human nature? Yeah. What does it mean to be human? That's the first question. Yeah. That occurred to me. Yeah. But that's not a descriptive question. That is a normative question. He's responding to a question that somebody had sent him, which was in turn partially a response to this Sartre article that we will cover in some future episode. Existentialism is a humanism asking pretty much, so Heidegger, people call you an existentialist. Are you a humanist? Are you even an existentialist? And he says no to both of those things. But the thing that he has to address in saying that is to say, we associate humanism with care for human beings, actually having some ethical concern at all. And of course, Heidegger, since he was writing this pretty soon after he was banned from teaching for his membership in the Nazi party, was very sensitive to accusations that his philosophy is nihilistic, that it's somehow unethical, that it somehow went with Nazism. And even though he's not going to respond to any of those charges Directly, he does want to say that what is called humanism is sort of this social fad that he doesn't have to be a part of because it is based on, well, a philosophical mistake. It's based on an ignorance of the primary question of philosophy, which should determine what our appropriate relationship to the world is, which is the question of being that he's been concerned with throughout his whole career. Wow, that was a great summary. Yeah. I didn't even mean to summarize. I was just trying to explain myself. (laughs) Hey, guys. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) which wait which we should use take this point to say there is a mini episode called a precog where we give a summary of the text as well as in a blog post so for those of you who have criticized us for not spending enough time early on summarizing what we had read we have now addressed those issues so if you don't know what we're talking about stop listening now and go either listen to the summary or read it and then come back and pick this up again yeah so can we say, I think this is a monster asking for a five-sentence summary of being and time, but why being is the primary question of philosophy. Heidegger, when he criticizes humanism or existentialism as being sort of on the wrong track because it's not concerned with the primary question of philosophy, and he has a more articulated argument against why his point of view is not coincident with humanism, but is nonetheless humane. 
But just to say maybe less why existentialism gets it wrong, but more what he means by being is the primary question of philosophy and everybody else gets it wrong. I mean, he starts off at, in being in time, right? Saying no one's asked this question before. <laughs> No one knows how to ask this question before. No one knows how to ask this question. The whole project of being in time was to figure out how to ask the question. And it only got so far. He retrospectively opines about his own work that it fell short. Yeah. Can we say in a couple sentences, what cashes out for that for Heidegger, that why everybody's wrong? Everybody else got it wrong, but me. (laughs) Well, he does try to say he's not doing that at some point. Yeah. He's doing the perennial philosophy. So actually all philosophers of note have come to the same conclusion that he has, he's making it explicit. He might have a more subtle point of view about it, but he nonetheless is indicting the entire philosophical tradition for getting something wrong. And in that, he has something in common with lots of philosophers. Maybe not Heraclitus. I think he thinks that the Greeks, and specifically Heraclitus and Parmenides, were in the neighborhood of getting a taste of what this was about. But what happened was that the trajectory of philosophy went the wrong way. And we fell into what he characterizes as metaphysics. So in short, the problem in trying to consider human being or what it means to be a human being is that we see human beings as a specific iteration or a type of being among beings. So we define the essence of being a human being against other beings And in this text, we'll talk a lot about the idea of the rational animal, but it could be a political animal, a social animal, the animal that was created in the image of God. And he thinks that as long as we're defining ourselves, even as exceptional amongst other animals, that we're somehow not getting at the essence of human being, which he thinks is sui generis, and that he believes will be uncovered if we think about human experience directly in relationship to being and not to other beings. I tell you, that's what he's saying. I can't tell you what that means. Yeah. So listeners, we do have a past episode on being in time that representing the early Heidegger, this episode representing the later Heidegger. So if you want a lot of discussion of what that project was about, go check that out. He cultivates a whole different set of analogies and words to characterize his point of view on, I want to call it his point of view on metaphysics, but he would not want to call it metaphysics. He wants to say what he's doing is philosophy or thinking, and Mm -hmm. that metaphysics is an example of that, and that he wants to broaden philosophy out of the oblivion of metaphysics. And in that way, it's his addressing the nihilistic end of Western philosophy, which I think he would say is a natural end that it came to around the time of Nietzsche and so forth, that was perfectly predictable. And for him, part of that project is recovering something that was at the very beginning of philosophy. That's a constant theme for him is going back to a kind of root that is in the pre-Socratics. But part of this cultivation is a whole set of words like clearing and dwelling and being might be contrasted with words like um, penetrating and grasping, those kinds of words, and mm-hmm. in terms of analogies for thinking. You spend a lot of time just trying to sort out what he's saying, somewhat in juxtaposition with what was before, but he uses these words in such analogically unusual ways that you almost have to take them as definitional, I find, and then try to sort of figure out what they mean. He has really bizarre phrases like, man is in throneness. 
and man is the shepherd of being. Yeah. In a certain kind of way, what he's doing is a performance. So there are argumentative sections in this particular text and other texts where he's making a criticism or he's making a point in a kind of traditional premise, you know, logic conclusion kind of manner. But I think ultimately his project is to say something like, I can't give you an argument for my point of view. I'm telling you that the whole structure of the way we think about things is restrictive and that we need to think in a different way. So all I can do is kind of show you what thinking in this different way might look like. And these texts, pretty much everything post-war for the most part, are examples of him trying to think differently. And you can give it a lot of different names, but poetic is one way to describe it, that he actually does quite a bit of analysis on poets and specific poems. But as Dylan mentioned, his dominant metaphor for much of his later work is dwelling, building, inhabiting. He's trying to build up another way of speaking about existence in the world. And the reason he uses that specific type of language is partially it speaks to something that's got a more effective content. You know, when you think of being at home by the hearth, you have a warm sensation of remembering, you know, when you were a young kid and it was snowy outside or whatever. And it's also partially to defeat the language of traditional philosophy, which sets up a distance and an opposition between the perceptive subject and the perceived world. What I like about the words dwelling and building is they have the combination of activity, but within something. He compresses it down to existence and ecstatic existence, a going forth from something. So there is an embeddedness, but that in the metaphor of building or dwelling is that you are in that space, but you are adding to it. And so the dwelling, the building doesn't happen out of the field of being by itself. It happens because you're there, because of human beings. And it's an activity that is proper to us as individuals and us collectively. But yet it's rooted in that clearing. I don't want to even say space. I think that that's going to even harken back to uh, traditional metaphysics in a way that he wouldn't want you to. So already the way you're talking about the clearing and the building within the clearing and the dwelling within the clearing makes it so that I think anybody that has not read the essay already is lost. I completely agree. <laughs> the two components to this new way of thinking that he's proposing, if he's giving, you know, using this philosophy to give an example of it, as well as try to explain it insofar as it can be explained, it's sort of getting at the limits of language. So there are limits to how much can be explained. He's trying to point the way to this new kind of philosophy. So the two parts of it are first getting in touch with being, capital B, in the way Seth was just saying, that comes prior to the subject-object distinction. And in one place in here, at least, he actually talks about it very much phenomenologically. That is, looking at your immediate experience before you divide these things up. And it really reminded me of our discussion of uh, Persig's Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And we've had other figures that have talked about this kind of thing before, but Persig in particular described this experience of before your brain kicks in and attaches to the objects of your experience, these traditional categories, 
then there is no difference between me and the thing that I'm perceiving. Like even that basic subject object distinction is the product of an analysis. And to get in touch with being itself is to get somehow prior in what sense prior is an interesting question to when that split takes place. And Persig refers to that as the perennial philosophy. He said, look, really, actually, what I was doing here is just what a lot of other philosophers have done before. It's this perennial philosophy that the romantics were doing. And Heidegger says the same toward the end of this essay. He says, any thinker of any note is always engaged in the same, capital S, Mm -hmm. even though their words aren't identical. And so that gets to the second part of it. The first part is common to a lot of mystical traditions, even though Heidegger is not going to say he's a mystic getting at being itself. But what makes him not a mystic is the second part of it, it, which is doing it through language. And language is what makes even all these philosophers doing the perennial philosophy, getting at what some will call God or the ground of everything or whatever. Why they talk about it differently is because they're all coming from different points of view, roughly speaking, different historical periods, different epochs. Language is the way in which being exposes itself to us. Language is the key. We dwell in language. Language is the house of being. He has all this kind of talk that we'll go into. But as soon as you enter into language, as soon as you're using language to get at this thing that I think is essentially inexpressible, you're getting to the limits of language. This is why poets or a certain kind of poetic philosophy can do it better than ordinary language, a common sense language, like you know all these things that have been encrusted by tradition that you can't do any real thinking with these words anymore because they've been overused and used for such drab purposes. But so if you really want to get to the heart of language and how to use language to do this, then you have to look at the history of being is what he refers to, which is really comes down to the history of language, doing this etymology, the history of philosophy, trying to take it back through Aristotle and to Heraclitus, mm. etc. And then it seems like that's a big thing that different philosophers took out of this. And you can see it in our Deleuze episode when he talks about different planes of imminence, different frameworks within philosophy's fit. But it seems like uh, this historicist strain in Heidegger is one that a lot of other philosophers really took up. Mark, I think that's a really great characterization. I might put a caution flag up around the historicist notion because I'm sure Eva, who we had on our last episode, would tell you, as many classicists do, that Heidegger's etymologies are creative. Mm -hmm. And so there's a distinct reason why I describe this way of thinking as poetic and why he spent a lot of time talking about poets. It's that contrast between praxis and poesis that he brings up in the essay. But when he's playing around with the language and he talks about this word means this and this means this, and this means this, whether he's throwing in Greek roots or just using contemporary German at the time that he was writing, he's making associations that are more poetic in the sense that we think of them, aka metaphor and metonymy, as opposed to relying on some sort of fixed meaning of a word and making logical inference. And in that sense, what he's doing has a closer analogy in what I've understood so far with what we've learned about the movement of the unconscious, as it's posited in Freud and Lacan, where the quote-unquote logic of the unconscious is different, where you can use alliteration and homophones and synonymy and metonymy and all these sorts of things, and that those are valid relations between concepts or words to move thought along. Heidegger wouldn't go that far, but I think that's a more apt 
than to say that what he's undertaking is some kind of historicist project to recover originary meanings of words. I know that I used to think that that was what he was doing, but I don't think that anymore. Let's give an example maybe from the text. So one that goes right to the heart of what this essay is supposed to do, which is pretty much, hey, Heidegger, does your take on this primary relationship that you're advising that we take up to being, does this pseudo-religious attitude then imply an ethics? And his take on that on page 256, 258, on 256, he actually looks at the Greek word ethos, and he says, the word names the open region in which man dwells. The open region of his abode allows what pertains to man's essence, and what in thus arriving resides in nearness to him to appear. All right, so it's giving a characterization that he's already given throughout this essay as what really being in touch with being is about, is feeling at home in this abode. So then on 258, he takes up the question, you know, does your uh, project involve that ethics? And he says, if the name ethics, in keeping with the basic meaning of the word ethos, should now say that ethics ponders the abode of man, then that thinking, which thinks the truth of being is the primordial element of man, as one who exists, we'll talk about that in a minute, is in itself the original ethics. In other words, yes, I have an ethics. If you interpret the word ethics in this historical, ideological way, <laughs> way that I think it really should, then goddamn, my, I have more of an ethics than these other ethical systems, because these other ethical systems that just give you a bunch of rules, they don't have the truth of being in mind. They're detached from being. In fact, later he says, the only way you could get rules for man that would be legitimate would be out of a firm understanding of being. To call it etymological might in many cases be too strong of a claim in that it would imply almost a scientific understanding of the origins of the words, where you would go through an argument that said, well, based upon these sources and these pronunciations and these derivatives, then I know that the word was used in X, Y, and Z way. And he's doing something often that is a little more gathering the meaning of the word from the text that he's read and understanding it, and maybe even adding his own flavor to what he thinks that means. And so it is not non-etymological. It's not that it isn't educated out of dealing with those Greek texts and knowing Greek really well and having read the Greek and maybe reading the Greek in a way that allows him to get a sense of what those words mean outside of a standard Greek-English dictionary or whatever he used for his Greek-German dictionary. As Seth pointed out, he's doing a kind of free association, which is, you know, when you mentioned the way the unconscious works, it's just the principle of association. And this is etymologically informed free association. Most words, the meanings are in fact metaphorical. You know, they used to mean something else, or they still do. They have multiple meanings. And so I don't know how you get abode from ethos. There may be some association he's making based on the ancient Greek. I'm unsure. But that is not what ethos means as far as your Greek goes. Right. So suppose ethos was related to oikos for house. Yes, oikos for house. Yeah. Maybe there's some relationship there. And then you could say, okay, so ethos character is related to the word for abode, or it used to mean that. But I think you know, you're right, Dylan. It's not simply arguing for some more primitive meaning of the word. It's a creative getting at the different associations between words and using that to drive one's thinking. Yeah. In this way, I mean, I think Seth's use of the word poetic is exactly right. 
you would do this kind of discussion of words, whether you were reading Sophocles or whether you were reading, in Heidegger's case, Holderin, is that you would be paying very close attention to the words that they use and taking seriously that they meant all of the possible resonances. Or you might even bracket the question of whether or not they meant them. You would take into account all the possible resonances of each of the words and the extra meanings that come up from the way those words themselves get juxtaposed, as well as the way they get juxtaposed in your own thought as a result of the things you're thinking then or the things you're thinking as a result of those poems that are before you. And that's the way he's doing it etymologically. When someone says, well, those aren't real etymologies or very good etymologies, what a person would mean is that they don't follow a kind of strict causal scientific understanding of how those etymologies would trace. You wouldn't necessarily be able to find the text where this is used clearly in XYZ way. So this question of ethics as an abode, that might be a pretty interesting one to try to sort out. <laughs> well, clearly he's using the past definitions of words and approaching things in a poetic way to try to get beyond the associations of the current everyday language. That even if you're not just trying to drill into the past to find what was lost, which I think he is when he tries to go back to Heraclitus, but he thinks that there's especially objectionable things about the current language. So right near where I was reading before, 258, 259, he's talking about the language that he used in being in time and the fact that he talked about ontology, which is the way he was using it is even more fundamental than metaphysics, which comes later. But this ontology talking about the different ways that the different modes of our being of our being in the world and the things that we interact with. He says, you know, the language falsifies itself, for it does not yet succeed in retaining the essential help of phenomenological seeing while dispensing with the inappropriate concern for science and research. I have learned to see that these very terms were bound to lead immediately and inevitably into error, for the terms in the conceptual language corresponding to them were not rethought by readers from the matter particularly to be thought. Rather, the matter was conceived according to established terminology in its customary meaning, in other words, as weird, you know, we had described in our Being in Time episode that, like, he's inventing this whole language for himself. Well, his complaint here is that his language was not far out enough. Right. He was too clear in being in time. <laughs> <laughs> he said it could at first be expressed only within the horizon of that existing philosophy and its use of current terms. In other words, nobody would understand him at all if he didn't use terms that were at least close to the existing ones. But he really meant something quite different, such that he has to go farther out now. He has to get even more obscure. I just thought that was very interesting in light of our discussion about Heraclitus last time about should we use when talking about a new scientific phenomenon, say, a newly discovered thing, traditional words, which then means you're using them in some metaphorical way, like using attraction for what we find out that magnets do, etc. I would think that Heidegger would be in accord with Eva on this because their methods what Heidegger is doing in this text and what Eva did in her text about Heraclitus, certainly on the face of it, seem pretty darn similar. That's the St. John's yeah. notoriously, yeah, Heideggerian etymological... This is why I called it a St. John's a Heideggerian cult. <laughs> this way of thinking is encouraged it. The etymologically based free association and all of that, this kind of, you know, maybe today we would call this hermeneutics, but this method of interpretation. Eva at the time was very adamant that 
not only do we need to express these new things as metaphor, but they actually still, in some sense, mean what the literal meanings of the words were. They're actually drawing a substantial comparison between these two things, uh, you know, the new thing you're naming and what the words themselves originally meant. So attraction for magnets and attraction for well, people or whatever, whatever the original meaning you take to be was. But Heidegger here is taking more of the tack that I was taking in that discussion and saying, you know, it would be really better if we could just dispense with that. I, I realize that you have to use an existing term for a new thing or nobody will get it. But once you've explained that, really, can we just please cut the legs out from under the well, original? But, well, but I don't really believe him when he says that, right? Because all of his work is founded in language. And in some ways, the whole history of philosophy is impregnated in language. And he can only do this thinking. In fact, the thinking that he prizes so much, that which is true, sui generis of us as human beings, is only possible through language. In some ways, for Heidegger, human beings are language beings and mm -hmm. language animals. I mean, maybe not even, he wouldn't even go that like Not animals. Don't yeah, say animals. Okay. But then that way, it's fundamental to us so that if you were to come up with words or ways of speaking that were utterly disconnected in some way, two things would happen, I think. One is that you would try to articulate that connection in some way, and that would either lead you to actually building those connections, or it would lead you to uncovering what were the original connections when somebody made that up. So I don't really, I, don't, I mean, to the extent that he says it, and I haven't I didn't get the same exact thing that you did, Mark, out of that particular section. I just don't really believe him. <laughs> Maybe I'm just overgeneralizing from what he's saying, but certainly the term ontology that he used in Being in Time, he kind of wishes now that he didn't use that term. Because the way we use it now is pretty much synonymous with metaphysics, or it's a specific action within metaphysics where you name, this is all the kinds of stuff that I think exists. Like, that's the way we learn it now, but that is still getting at beings, plural with a small b, individual things and categorizing them and not at being itself. So there's something bad about that. Whereas this word that he used throughout here, ecstatic, we are EK dash static. So that's what that's standing out from. You had mentioned this before. You know, so this has a background. You can see why he's using that term if you listen to what he says about the Greek words from which this comes. But it has, you know, the only associations that it has in Current language is the fact that it sounds like ecstatic with a C and no dash. It sounds like ecstasy. Which it's related in the sense of this openness. Uh -huh. uh, yep. And the merging thing that goes on with ecstasy, right? Yeah, it seems like he wouldn't mind that association. Right. But just the fact that it's spelled differently and everything makes it clear that he's not exactly talking about that, but he welcomes the comparison. We want to back up and frame the problem that he's addressing and... Go ahead. In my edition, I don't think I have the same page numbers. Do you have the Krell? I have some PDF I found online. <laughs> the Krell is the big orange Heidegger's basic writings. It's 245 in my edition, but where he's first talking about humanism and Roman humanism. So this question of whether he's a humanist. And so he begins by objecting or begins by describing early humanism, what he calls Roman humanism. And this idea that the essence of being a human being is to be a rational animal, which we have kind of touched on. 246 to 247, we get this idea that the essence of being a human being is what he calls existence, E-K-S-I-S-T-E-N-C-E. And that's actually what I meant and not ex. <laughs> okay. I didn't know. I was wondering if you were, if you meant that or X, yeah, because he uses the ecstasy thing too. Yeah. 
Well, at the top of 46, he says, existence in fundamental contrast to every existentia and existence is ecstatic dwelling in the nearness of being. So mm. he contrasts his understanding existence with the Roman term extentia. So he wants to rescue the notion of what we are in terms of our essence in terms of existence and also existence in the way existentialists use it. And so he yeah. has this analysis of existence, extentia, essence, and then this all goes back to a Greek word, usia, as well. Usia being being. In traditional metaphysics, right, what is metaphysics trying to do? It's trying to describe the basic stuff out of the world, out of which everything is made. And, you know, one way of getting at that is the concept of substance, right, which is what translates the word usia as something that persists through change, or it's the thing in which all the properties inhere, so that it's what allows us to take a thing which is always changing over time and say, yes, this is a thing. This is actually an entity, despite the fact that it never seems to stay itself. That's the problem that something like substance is trying to solve at a metaphysical level. And then applied to conscious human beings, that substance can become, let's say, the soul. Aristotle's innovation is to say, well, substance is actually form. So the substance of, let's say, a wolf is the natural kind wolf, and it has causal roles. It, it explains why a wolf does what it does, the form of the wolf, and so on and so forth. And then when you get to Kant, those basic metaphysical concepts become categories. They become part of what we're doing when we structure experience, or the categories of the mind, let's say. So substance is a category, causality, these very basic ordering principles. He's going to reject the notion that rational animal is the essence of human being, and he's going to replace that with existence. So he's trying to go to a deeper level ontologically, and he's trying to get underneath the subject-object distinction. So existence will explain rationality ultimately, but it's a deeper level. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.